Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 2 A Whirlwind Arrives. Before pre-season training began, Graham Taylor wrote to the players, giving them each an appointment to meet him in his office. One by one they arrived, not knowing what to expect. Steve Sherwood, a goalkeeper who had joined from Chelsea the previous November and who'd pushed Andy Rankin out of the team towards the end of the season, was among the first to meet the manager. Sherwood's huge paw enveloped Taylor's as they shook hands, but there was no mistaking the hierarchy here. At six foot four inches, Sherwood towered over the manager, but as he took his seat on the opposite side of the desk, he found his physical advantage had been reversed. I was on this little chair like you had at school, and he's up there on a proper-sized one, which was no mistake, I'm sure, says Sherwood. From the first minute, Taylor took charge. I'm going to take this club places, he said. Do you want to be a part of it? Sherwood nodded. Well, how easy do you want it to be? the manager asked. As easy as I can make it, Sherwood replied. It was an honest answer, but as soon as the words were out of his mouth, he knew it was the wrong answer. Taylor leaned across the desk. You're going to work harder than you've ever worked before. You're going to run and sweat and get fitter than you've ever been in your life. Sherwood wasn't too worried. I thought, well, I'm a goalkeeper. Surely I won't be doing all the same work as the other lads. He couldn't have been more wrong. Another player who remembers his first meeting with the new manager is Luther Blissett, a 19-year-old striker who had been knocking on the door to the first team for a while but seemed unable to barge his way in. Blissett scored on his full debut against Swansea City in April 1976 but had not yet managed a run in the side. Before Taylor arrived, they were thinking of letting him go. Blissett sat down and Taylor weighed him up for a minute. Then he began to say the name over and over again. Luther Blissett. Luther Blissett. Luther Blissett. Each time louder and more theatrically than the last, until he stood up, spread his arms wide, and gave it everything he had. Luther Blissett. He sat down. With a name like that, son, you're bound to be a star. Blissett didn't know what to make of it but all of a sudden he felt ten feet tall. Most of the players had never known a physical regime like it. They ran until they could taste iron in their spit, and when they thought they'd completed the last lap of the pitch, they were told to do another one. There were ten-mile cross-country runs wending through Casterbury Park and Whippendale Woods, sprint sessions up the terraces at the Vicarage Road end, and timed 400-metre efforts, flat out, one after another after another. It was gruelling but Taylor wanted his squad fit for the dynamic style of play he would ask them to adopt. On Mondays they would train in the gym at the YMCA Centre in Charter Place. Pop mobility, it was called, says Blissett, smiling at the memory. You'd call it aerobics now. There they were. Tough lower division footballers, all with 1970s haircuts, some with moustaches and beards, being told to jump, run on the spot or stretch to the music by an instructor, in bright spandex. Taylor didn't want his players just fit for football. 
He wanted to lift their all-round condition and flexibility and make them the fittest group in the 4th Division. He knew that the fitter they were, the less likely they were to pick up the avoidable injuries. At the gym they'd lift weights and compete in squash and badminton tournaments or play five-a-side. Tuesdays were reserved for the dreaded cross-country and woe betide anyone who walked or thought about taking a shortcut because the manager would be running with them, usually well up at the front. Les Simmons, the groundsman, was reluctant to allow too many training sessions to take place at the stadium because of the damage it would do to his grass. So eventually a new training ground was found on the pitches at Shendish Manor, the country house owned by the paper company John Dickinson on a hill overlooking Apsley. It had its own climate up there, says Blissett. In summer it was roasting hot and seemed much hotter than everywhere else and the ground would be bone hard. In winter it was the last place the snow melted and it was so open the wind would cut across you no matter what the weather. At first the players shared a single set of ancient training kit. Frayed shirts, shorts with the elastic band missing that had to be folded over and over at the waist so they'd stay up and crusty socks. It would be hung up to dry overnight and tipped on the floor of the dressing room to be fought over the next day. It was the same smelly kit we'd had the previous day, but you weren't necessarily getting the same shorts or socks. It was only washed once a week and it was so stiff sometimes it was horrible, says Blissett. After a while, Taylor made sure the players had their own set of training kit and told them to look after it. The work didn't let up all through pre-season. They trained twice a day, every day. We'd do running in the morning, then some crossing and shooting, and then more running, says Sherwood. We did one session where we had to keep running through a sandpit, and I got cramp in both calves at once. They had to carry me back to the changing room. You were so pleased to eventually see a football, and the result was you enjoyed that side of the work even more, because at least you weren't running. It wasn't as if Taylor had a million pounds of Elton John's money burning a hole in his pocket that summer and all he had to do was go out and buy a new team. It was fortunate he saw potential in the squad and felt he could improve them without a major overhaul. Getting out of the fourth division was only the first step on the journey, and Elton's money had to fund a rise through three divisions, which might take several years. The manager and the chairman agreed on a realistic timetable. Taylor felt it might take five seasons to reach the second division, and another five to consolidate and strengthen before pushing on to the top flight. He told Elton that if Watford kicked off in the first division in August 1987, it would be considered a success. And of course that million pounds also had to fund a radical revamp of a stadium that was barely of third division status, let alone fit to welcome Arsenal, Tottenham and the rest of English football's royalty on a regular basis. At Taylor's suggestion, Elton agreed that any money earned from cup ties, including gate receipts and television revenue, would be set aside to strengthen the team. That meant success in the Cups was to be a crucial part of the long-term plan, not simply a chance for a day or two in the footballing sunshine. Knowing he had to fashion a team quickly, Taylor went for people he knew he could rely on. At 8 o'clock one July morning, Sam Ellis, the man who had captained Taylor's championship-winning Lincoln team, became his first signing for Watford. The fee was £6,000. Ellis was a couple of months short of his 32nd birthday, so this was not a long-term strategy but he was a leader of men and brought in to galvanise the squad and reinforce the manager's message without being seen as some sort of teacher's pet. Four hours later, Ian Bolton, 
an elegant central defender who had been in and out of the Notts County team, joined. Taylor had signed Bolton on loan for Lincoln the previous season and wanted to make the move permanent, but the Imps couldn't come up with the cash. If he had worried a second division player might need a bit of persuading to drop down a couple of rungs, Taylor need not have worried. Bolton had been so impressed by his short spell at Lincoln that he did not hesitate signing for Taylor. The underlying issue of a recurring back injury explained the bargain £12,000 transfer fee, but even with the possibility of it flaring up from time to time, Taylor knew he'd got himself a great deal. I didn't know this at the time, but Graham had said he wanted to sign a couple of uglies, a pair of centre-halves to give the team some sort of backbone, says Bolton. As it turned out, Ellis and Bolton rarely lined up together at the heart of defence. Bolton started the season in midfield and went back to partner Alan Garner when Ellis got injured. But their influence on the changing room was as important as their impact on the pitch. When it came to explaining the way he wanted the team to play, Taylor kept it simple. Like his Lincoln side, he wanted Watford to be a positive attacking team. He wanted them to be aggressive but not reckless. That meant closing down the opposition from the front, which required everyone to be fit to run for 90 minutes. We'd call it a pressing game now, but the key to creating goal-scoring chances was to win the ball high up the pitch and shoot on sight. To win promotion, they would need to win plenty of matches, of course, but Taylor wanted to score goals and entertain too. Crowds at Vicarage Road were small, but there was the potential to attract people back if he could build a side that created a buzz. One of the misconceptions that Taylor least enjoys is the idea that the attacking style of play he favoured as a manager stemmed from the frustration of playing as a fullback during his professional career. I was not a fullback, he says in mock protest. As a schoolboy, he played centre forward or inside right and had trials for the England under 15 team as a right half, a position we'd recognise as a right sided midfielder today. He played for the England Grammar and Public Schools side as a midfielder before joining 2nd Division Grimsby Town in 1962. Although he'd broken into the first team, he was still eligible for the youth side and when Grimsby was short of players for an FA Youth Cup tie against Doncaster Rovers, the manager, Tom Johnson, picked Taylor to play at left-back. The Mariners won 5-0 and after the match he was told, Well, son, that's your best position, isn't it? I couldn't believe it says Taylor. I didn't see myself as a defensive player at all. But Taylor had a choice. He either learned how to master the position or he travelled the 30 miles home to Scunthorpe and explained to his father and the headmaster of the grammar school, who had dismissed his dreams of becoming a footballer as a waste of time, that he hadn't made the grade. With the help of one of Grimsby's trainers, George Higgins, Taylor learned the art of defending and honed his game. Without George, I wouldn't have survived, he says. The roots of Taylor's footballing philosophy lay in the era during which he first watched the game. Everyone played the WM formation, devised by Arsenal's legendary manager Herbert Chapman in the 1920s. Teams operated with three defenders, two half-backs that would be described as holding midfielders today and five forwards. Entertainment and goals were the currency. I hadn't been brought up to try to win matches 1-0. The view was that if the opposition got one, you'd get two. And in the 50s and 60s, that is what professional football was like, Taylor says. He couldn't bear the creeping prevalence of a cautious, patient style of play. 
a poor man's interpretation of the suffocating style favoured by teams in the World Cup, with the ball spending more time moving from one side of the pitch to the other. If you want people to come and watch, you have to give them entertainment, he says. There isn't a football supporter anywhere in the world who doesn't prefer to see the ball at the opposition's end of the pitch rather than back in their own half. Taylor picked his team to fit the style he wanted to play, at first preferring Sherwood to Rankin in goal, partly because of his ability to kick the ball a long way, which would help Watford put teams under pressure. Keith Pritchett, the left-back, fitted Taylor's requirements perfectly too. Graham had asked me if I struggled against pacey wingers, and I said that a number of full-backs did, but that I was a forward-thinking player who liked to get their winger facing the other way, he says. Pritchett, who was one of Keane's last signings, had joined from Brentford, but was one of the few at Watford who had any experience of playing in the First Division, as he had for Queen's Park Rangers. When Graham came in, it was a bit like the place had been hit by a whirlwind. Things were a little bit relaxed before, but standards rose in every department on and off the pitch. The pace of change perhaps caught people by surprise, but we carried that energy onto the pitch with us. With the full-backs encouraged to attack, and everyone asked to look for a forward pass, Taylor knew he'd need a strong partnership in attack. Ross Jenkins was one of the small handful of players who had some First Division experience. The 26-year-old had joined Watford from Crystal Palace in 1972, and, as the team struggled, so the sometimes ungainly looking forward bore the brunt of the crowd's frustration. Taylor was keen to play to Jenkins' strengths. We had played sort of off-the-cuff for the first couple of years I was at Watford, although Mike Keane did try to get more of a team pattern of play going. It wasn't until Graham came in that we really had any clear direction, Jenkins says. I didn't get the sense that Graham was fixed on the type of player he wanted up front, but he did want someone who could hold the ball up and make certain runs. When we first met him, he told us it was basically up to us players to make themselves a part of it. He was going to turn things around, and if we wanted to come on board, we'd stick around and go with him on the journey, and if we didn't embrace what he was trying to do, it was pretty obvious we wouldn't stick around. He didn't impose anything on us. He told us what he wanted to do, and it was up to us to do the rest. I think he weighed up what he had in the squad, saw what we were good at and what we struggled with, and planned accordingly. The basics were devastatingly simple. Watford would play on the front foot, always looking to attack if they could, playing the ball wide and getting crosses into the penalty area, or hitting it up to the centre forward and offering plenty of support. Their increased fitness levels would help them play at a high tempo that most other teams would be unable to cope with, certainly not for the full 90 minutes. Taylor applied a formula based on a number of ideas he'd picked up over the years. In the early 1970s, he'd met Alan Brown, who had been manager at Sunderland and Sheffield Wednesday. Brown outlined the theory behind shadow play. The idea of matching up the attack versus defence in training and practising a set series of moves until they became second nature. This would provide the foundations on which every other facet of the team's play would be built. The players would know what their teammates would do in certain situations, so if the left-back had the ball, the rest of the team knew where he was likely to play the pass, and the midfielders and forwards could time their runs accordingly. If the play broke down, the team reset themselves and made sure they were in position to defend before regaining the ball and going again. Every possibility was considered, so the team was prepared if the pass failed to arrive at its intended destination. 
What position would the midfielders take up to anticipate the clearance? Where should the defenders go? What should the forwards do to regain possession? As many eventualities as possible were prepared for, and as it became second nature, it became an efficient and effective way of playing. Not everyone embraced it, or was able to grasp the ideas. We were looking to get in behind teams, and we did a lot of work on those runs, getting the centre-forwards to cross over to make things difficult for defenders. We had a forward called Arthur Horsfield, and he admitted he didn't have the legs for it, and that he wasn't keen on doing it. So we let him go, says Taylor. Jimmy McGuigan, Taylor's old manager at Grimsby, had explained another tactic, known as third-man running, which West Ham United had adopted in the 1960s. The idea was to play the ball up to the centre-forward, who would flick it on, knock it down or control and pass it, while a third player, either his strike partner or a midfielder, ran into space between or behind the opposition defenders to latch onto the ball. Using the theories handed down by McGuigan and Brown, and others he had picked up on the coaching courses he'd attended over the years, Taylor laid the groundwork. You meet a lot of people, and you go on a lot of courses, but you can't possibly take everything on, he says. I realised you had to take the best bits, the things that fitted in with what you believed the game was about and try to use them. We introduced a game plan, so the players knew what they were expected to do and what was happening next. It wasn't anything radically different to what Taylor had done at Lincoln, but he was starting afresh with new players, some of whom had never been coached so specifically before. Some players do it naturally, but as you go down the divisions, it doesn't come naturally, so you have to teach them and then practice. It didn't happen overnight, but we practiced and practiced. On occasions, maybe they thought it was too much, or that it was repetitive, but by working on it, we gave them a belief and a confidence. They knew that if things were not going well, they had some solid basics to fall back on, and sometimes when you're under pressure in a game, you need that. Getting the ball into the penalty area early was critical. It gave the opposition defenders less time to plan or steady themselves, and it forced them onto the back foot. And, as long as the ball went into the back of the net, fairly, there was no point being snobbish about how it got there. At the core of it all was a code of discipline that was fair but strictly enforced, and a sense of a club's place in the community was established. Taylor wanted Watford Football Club to be seen and heard, not be just a patch of grass surrounded by a ramshackle collection of grandstands where a few thousand oddballs congregated every other Saturday to watch a mostly unsuccessful team. The club bore the town's name, so the least the team could do was become an integral part of the town. I'd read about Laurie McMenemy taking his Grimsby players to meet the workers at the fisheries, and I thought it was right that the team should be a part of the community if we wanted people to come out and support us, he says. Standards were introduced. Jeans were banned, not because they were inherently scruffy, but because they were open to interpretation. One man's idea of an acceptable pair of denims could have been filled with holes or spattered in paint. Taylor wanted no grey areas. He drew the line very clearly. Mike Keane was a smashing guy, but the discipline was nothing like it was when Graham came in, says Sherwood. With Mike, the senior players used to come in after a session and say their legs were tired and you'd get the next day off. You'd never dare say that in Graham's earshot. If you did, you were asking for an even harder day. You knew the boundaries, says Blissett. This is acceptable, this is not. You had a choice, but you knew if you went against the way you were expected to behave, there would be trouble. One of Graham's sayings right from the start 
was that the difference between an amateur and a professional was that the professional looked after the detail. He never missed a thing, and that taught you to pay attention to every aspect of your life. The way you trained, the way you dressed, the way you looked after yourself. He made you want to do better. He was very demanding, but there was something about him that made you want to please him. The arrival of Ellis and Bolton, and then Dennis Booth, a defensive midfielder who joined from Lincoln in October after Watford had pocketed a bit of money from a League Cup tie at West Bromwich Albion, transformed the dressing room. The club I joined was really a club that wasn't going anywhere, Blissett said. Mike was a very nice person, but the senior players who were there were a little bit too strong for him. The players were running the club. Now, that's not too much of a problem if the manager wants a really strong dressing room, but they have to answer to the manager. I never got the feeling that was how it worked. Sam and Dennis had worked with Graham before. They knew how he worked, and they reinforced the message from the manager. They were strong characters, but they pulled the dressing room together rather than split it, and they took no crap at all. Sam was the captain, and he was an intelligent man. He could put you down very quickly, cutting you to ribbons with his use of the English language. But he did it in such a way that you didn't feel alienated. All of a sudden, the dressing room was not a place run by a select few. It was for all of the players, as it should be. It had been a short summer, but already the team was united. Now they had to put it into practice on the pitch and get some points on the board. End of chapter 2 Next time, Graham Taylor's methods have an immediate impact as Watford win back-to-back -back promotions. <laughs>